Podcraft.com. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I know not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building, a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul, which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveller upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it, I paused to think, what was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the House of Usher? It was a mystery all insoluble, nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded upon me as I pondered. Nevertheless, in this mansion of gloom, I now proposed to myself a sojourn of some weeks. That was the, well, a few of the opening lines from Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. And you are joining us here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Chad, why are we talking about Edgar Allan Poe on an H.P. Lovecraft podcast? It's, it seems ridiculous. It does seem, well, it's not that ridiculous at all, actually. It's preposterous, even. No, we we, uh, we covered Poe last week in the little live Google Hangouts show that we did. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. And we're covering Poe again. When we talked about him in the last episode, you know, mm-hmm. we made comment on the fact that Lovecraft completely idolized and loved Edgar Allan Poe. As he should. And this story in particular, (laughs) he talks about quite a bit in his essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature. And that essay, Supernatural Horror and Literature, has sort of been the thread that's tying all the stories we've been covering together lately. Oh, okay. It all makes sense. Poe, we did give some bio on him. A little bit, yeah. In the last episode. We're going to continue to talk here and there about his life. But the nice thing is that covering these stories, you know, it's not like he's a subcultural figure like Lovecraft or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> you talk about Poe, people have a pretty good idea of, of who you're talking about. One of our listeners, actually, uh, as, a, as a side here, um, uh-huh. posted on one of the comments that that in Matthew Pearl's The Poe Shadow, that there was this theory that he was suffered from diabetes and had a super uh-huh. low tolerance to alcohol, so he couldn't drink much of the alcohol at all. Whereas, well, that's pretty interesting because that's contrary to the, the general public assumption that he was this complete drunk right well well, he would you could get drunk but he would get drunk only on one or two drinks and then it was because his body just couldn't process the alcohol so when these guys cooping guys the guys that would give you a few drinks and have you vote many times oh that's what cooping is yeah okay because in the last episode you were like i don't even know what that is but then we went on to talk about it i guess (laughs) (laughs) that's what it is and uh, these cooping guys gave him a bunch of drinks trying to get him really drunk but since he couldn't process the alcohol it really messed him up and gotcha uh, caused some problems and he died. But then um, I looked up, there's an article in The Guardian, uh, which is a paper here in the UK, which talks about also this Matthew Pearl doing some other research. And and there was this weird thing that happened where 
Poe's body was exhumed 20 feet, 24 years after he died. I guess mm. they decided, well, they're moving his body to a different location, I believe is what it was. But right. somebody decided to go peeping in on his body and looking at his, okay. his remains. And they said that in his skull, you could still see his brain, which was what? small. Yeah, yeah. His brain was tiny and small, and uh, but it was still his brain, and they thought, wow, it's pretty interesting how that could be. And this was a report done at the time. This was in the 18... Yeah, he died in 49, so it's like 24 years after that. So we're like oh, 60, okay. 64, 65, something sure. like that. This report of the person at the time who's looked at Poe's body was kind of strange. So uh, this guy, Pearl, went to a forensics pathologist and said, hey, you know, what's up with this? The brain shrank? It became a small brain inside the head? And they're like, no, wait, the brain's one of the first things that goes when you die. It starts to disintegrate and fall apart. Yeah. What that might have been is a calcified tumor. Oh. Because sometimes when you get a cancer, cancer, a brain tumor, it'll calcify and it'll become... Sure. Yeah, and so it lasts a while. So if that was the case... And it was big enough that they thought it was a shrunken brain. It yeah, he must have had a huge tumor. It could have been a huge brain tumor. So all yeah. this, all these instances of him being really drunk and messed up and, and not knowing what was going on and he even supposedly hallucinated a bunch when later part of his life could have been all caused by a brain tumor. Well, maybe that brain tumor is the reason that we have all this great short fiction. <laughs> it could be. If there had been modern medicine, they would have removed it and all of his stories would have been like... You know, the pleasant day spent at the House of Usher. <laughs> <laughs> a nice Sunday afternoon at the House of Usher. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty interesting. I mean, when you said that right away about his his brain still being in there, that made me, for whatever reason, go, wait a minute, was he buried alive? <laughs> As if there's any kind of connection between those two things. <laughs> no. But, you know, he was that he was so afraid of that happening. He, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's in a few of his stories, like that whole mm-hmm. idea, yeah, including this one. But to the point, um, nobody really knows exactly what happened with Poe in the last days. There's some theories and right. there's new evidence, and but it's still, you know, it's history. It's hard to really piece things together to know exactly what had happened. It's pretty exciting to speculate about it. Oh, yeah, it's super fun. <laughs> yeah. What we do know on this show, however, is what Lovecraft thinks of things because he wrote a lot about that. And on this story, The Fall of the House Usher, he had some uh, some particular things to say. So why don't we just go ahead and I think it's a good way to start off our discussion to hear what yeah, sure. our pal Lovecraft thought of the story. Simple and straightforward in plot, this story owes its supreme magic to the cunning development, which appears in the selection and collocation of every least incident. Essentially, you know, he puts the words together just in the right way. Mm-hmm. Usher, whose superiority in detail and proportion is very marked, hints shudderingly of obscure life in inorganic things, and displays an abnormally linked trinity of entities at the end of a long and isolated family history. A brother, his twin sister, and their incredibly ancient house, all sharing a single soul and meeting one common disillusion at the same moment. So that kind of gives us a quick, quick synopsis of the story, as well as um, the things that are great about it, which is the way that the language is put together. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll talk about it as we go, but man, Poe is... He really is a master. (laughs) You know, talking about how Lovecraft was kind of a a hack, a Poe hack, I remember saying, well, it's not that Poe-ish. It's not, you know, it's not. I remember way back in the day. And we digging into Poe, it's like, of course, (laughs) Lovecraft is kind of a hack compared to Poe. I mean, this stuff is, it's so insanely well put together. And we'll talk about it once we actually Well, yeah. And I think the difference is that Lovecraft has an imaginative genius. Yes. And then he has a very quirky writing style that makes him so unique 
that yes. he's a fascinating guy. But I his agree. ideas are so incredible that that's why I think they live on in this sort of extended universe that other people work in. Yeah. Whereas I think Poe's genius was in his was in his language and in his writing yeah. and his his ability to use sound to produce effect. And it just so happened that he had a depressive personality. You know, well, obviously, he has a great imagination as well. I, should, I don't want to. <laughs> he's a genius in all those areas. But I think that there's those differences between the guys there. But especially when you read this story, you know, with that opening paragraph, which just sets mood. You know, we heard excerpts from it there. Everything it does is sets that mood. And then we don't actually get into what the story is until, no. you know, kind of the next paragraph. And that's something that Lovecraft always did stylistically. He would try to impress you with an idea in the beginning or a mood. And then he would, so he was just cribbing that, like, sort of right out of Poe. Chen, you know, when I was reading the story, I had a bit of a hard time getting the rhythm of it. Yeah. And I also felt super embarrassed at my blundering of the, the reading on the live show that oh, I decided I was going to just read it out loud to myself. Yeah. Well, one, it helped a lot. <laughs> it helped me get the rhythm a lot more when I actually had to read it out loud. Yeah. But I also found that I liked doing it in a weird voice. I don't know if you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was reading out aloud as as well. You can't help it for some reason. And the, the way that the language is put together, too, it just lends itself to it so much. But yeah, I was doing it in different accents and stuff like that. Heather heard me doing bad Scottish accent. I, <laughs> Scottish? You were doing it in Yeah, for whatever reason, the way this language is put together, it just seems like it should be, you know. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house, <laughs> and the simple landscape features of the domain. Like that kind of thing. I have a terrible accent. That's the problem. In contemplation of soul. That was a great Australian accent, dude. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) The hideous dropping off of the veil. Well, I'm doing that kind of thing. No, I was doing it in my uh, my faux Virginian accent. Oh, I was like, uh, uh, let's see if I during the whole of the dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens. (laughs) I had been passing alone. I've, it's kind of doing a Bill Compton meets Foghorn Leghorn kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I know. And that's when I discovered the formula for my secret chicken recipe. I say, son, let's go to the house of Husher. <laughs> some cornmeal. But sitcom like I did get caught doing that. And was oh, you did get like, caught? Hey. Oh, but yeah, like Heather doesn't see you sitting around the house doing voices all the time. Yeah, that it does happen probably more often than... <laughs> than in other spots. But I think it's because it's so fun to read it out loud because of the the way that it's written. And so you're going to do that and and then you get goofy with it. One more quick aside that we didn't cover when we talked bio on Poe before. Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about his military career and that he was Mm -hmm. adopted and this kind of stuff. But with his adopted family, he actually spent some formative years in England. Yeah, went to Britain in 1815. So that would make him, uh, he was born in... 1809, so he was... So he's very young. Six years old? Yeah. And then he attended grammar school in Scotland. Yep, Scotland, okay. And then went down to London for a few years, and then a boarding school in Chelsea. So he didn't go back into the States until 1820. So, yeah. Yeah. He spent a lot of his early childhood in the UK. Something I didn't know. I think you you would almost have to to be able to create... I mean, there's no setting in the United States that's going to be particularly as old decayed and broken down as the picture he paints here i mean this is definitely more of a european kind of setting speaking of european there's an opening epigraph to the story oh right 
yeah, it's uh, it's in French. It's uh, Chen. Maybe you should read it since you're you're a French descent. We should have uh, we should have gotten somebody to read it for us. Although you know what, there's still time. We're going to be covering the story over a couple of episodes. So if somebody wants to uh, to send us some audio of the French, that would be great. But what it, it it's from Le Rufus Le Rufus by the French songwriter Pierre Jean de Beranger. Mm-hmm. Beranger translated to English. This epigraph says, "His heart is a suspended lute. As soon as it is touched, it resounds." What do you think that's about? I would say that the brother Usher, he's very sensitive type. Yeah, I thought it was the sensitivity. He's hypersensitive. Right. It seems kind of obvious to me. What what heart that's, yeah. you know, a heart is touched and you know, it, it resounds. So, you know, isn't that what touching know. a heart means? It It is what touching a heart means. Okay, well. <laughs> so I don't know what its particular significance, maybe the fact that he's a musician. Sure, there's that too. I mean, yeah. I don't think we need to stretch. If it's obvious, it's obvious. And I think okay. that is why. Because okay, Usher is incredibly sensitive, and he's also right. a, a rock star. We're starting out with that character, actually, and the house. We heard a lot about the house of Usher itself, and we get a little story as we move on that uh, our protagonist who's showing up there, his old childhood friend, Roderick Usher, had written him and asked him to come help him out. The letter basically said, come see me, I'm ill, I, I need some distraction, things are really bad. And our protagonist says, you know, it was the heart of the letter that told him this was no joke, and it merited a personal reply. This is a very singular thing going on. Something's really bad. Yeah. You find out that they don't know each other very well. They were boyhood friends. And it's been years since they've actually really seen each other or even connected. He's felt the the call to go here and do this thing. Now, there's this one sentence. There's a sentence. I mean, there's many sentences in this. Just about the writing style of Poe that I find super interesting is he writes these in a sentence. He'll often put an aside in the sentence, but then like an aside to the aside. Right. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like there's one this one sentence right here. I'll get, try and give this a go. It was this deficiency I considered while running over in thought the perfect keeping of the character of the premises with the accredited character of the people and while speculating upon the possible influence which the one in the long lapse of centuries might have exercised upon the other, it was this deficiency, perhaps, of collateral issue and the consequent undeviating transmission from sire to son of the patrimony with the name which had at length so identified the two as to merge the original title of the estate in the quaint and equivocal appellation of the House of Usher, an appellation which seemed to include in the mind of the peasantry who used it both the family and the family mansion. That was one <laughs> sentence. That was one sentence. Yeah. Now, now, if now Lovecraft did this a lot, but and I and my reading of it wasn't great, mind you. But there is a rhythm know, to good. this. Oh, was it really? You liked it? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay, thanks. But there's a rhythm to it that that you just kind of hit, and that's why I mean, had so much fun when I was reading it out loud to myself. That I just found mm-hmm. this kind of this meter to it that just held through almost the whole story. It's it's just oh man, it's such a cool, not just cool story, but cool. cool Coolly written. It's just great. I love it. The way that uh, it's put together, in spite of all of those clauses piling up one upon the other, it's also not difficult to figure out what he's talking about. Yeah. In the hands of a lesser writer, I think it would be very tough. And in that section that you read there, what he is actually referring to is the um, the fact that people, even in the town, the peasantry, the people around mm-hmm. there, combined the house is synonymous with the people who live in the house, that family. Right. Because it's the stem of the ushers living in that in that family house and and this is the really fascinating beginning of the story is that they're facing true death in that they never were successful at 
continuing the line of the ushers with other families. Yeah. All of the people who kind of shot off those families died off, and it's just been one long line of descent. And the two people living in this house, the brother and sister, represent the end of the line. Neither of them have children. You know, I was thinking about it this time as I read this, how, in a real sense, children represent immortality. A lot of people have belief systems about what happens to us after we die, etc. But the one sure. thing we do know is that that children is your way and to, to continue on. Hmm. Not specifically your unique identity, but things oh. about you, things a, that kind of contribute to the character part of, of your you, entire for sure. family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that, like... I know the grandparents on my father's side, for example, I don't, they were dead before I was born, but I bet you I have ticks or things that I do or turns of phrase or something. Well, I mean, even, not even just on a genetic sense, but there are social cues that you get from your parents that stay, stay with your, your whole life. And those get passed on. Exactly. Down. I mean, even if you're an adopted child, if you're raised from an early age by people, there's parts of those people's personalities and the way they think that will be a part of you that's right uh, forever and that will be part of you when you raise your children and that will become a part of them well you make an excellent point too that that even among your peer group your people will pick up things about you that, that maybe they'll pass on so there's things in immortality there if you can be social <laughs> but these, <laughs> right. these people are not. not only is their family line ending they're like agoraphobic <laughs> and they haven't left this place so Right. What Poe is actually put together here is not just a story about death, but it's the deathiest of deaths. This is yeah. <laughs> there is nothing more deathy than this death that is being <laughs> visited upon the ushers. Yeah, it's the absolute final word. The way that we come around to that from those first few paragraphs of the story, and we've we've gone on and on about it, but the 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 thing that the opening really addresses is that absolute dead depression that the house of usher when you approach it the feeling that you get it's not just like like horror has a certain kind of poetry to it there's mm -hmm. a thrill to it if the house were scary in some way that would actually inspire poetry in a way mm -hmm. it inspires you to think it's exciting but this is um dim dead dull depression disillusion i mean it's um, it's he, he says the veil has been lifted which is an interesting contrast to something like the great god pan mm -hmm. where the veil is the mundane, and when it's lifted, we see the extraordinary. But with Poe here, the veil is that gauzy sense of purpose or structure or positivity or meaningfulness that we see right. in life. And when he approaches Usher, it's as if that's lifted and it's just that dull, soundless, ugly, mundane dullness that's there around the estate. It's, it's pretty cool because it feels like there's a sadness to it. Yeah. As opposed to like Lovecraft's stuff where it's more horrible or terrifying and it's not necessarily – there's definitely – through almost all of Post's stories, there is a, a certain level of sadness to it. And I yeah. think that this story really captures it. Absolutely. And it's it's sadness of finality. It's not a romantic sadness. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. And the sky around the house even seems to form this sort of dull dome that no other nature can break into. It says in the story, I had so worked upon my imagination as really to believe that about the whole mansion and domain there hung an atmosphere peculiar to themselves and their immediate vicinity. An atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but which had reeked up from the decayed trees and the gray wall and the silent tarn. A pestilent and mystic vapor, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible, and leaden-hued. I had to look up Tarn. I didn't remember what that was. Well, you know what? Uh, I didn't know what a Tarn was until I moved to the UK, and there's a Tarn up, up on the hill that everybody talks about. There's, you go up and feed ducks at the Tarn. I was like, Tarn? What the heck's 
Oh, okay. What's a tarn? And I was like, oh, it's a pond. <laughs> I I mean, from the context here. <laughs> I guess a tarn isn't just a, a pond, but it's sort of a divot left from a glacier. I, I mean, you just assume it's a moat or a, a lake of some kind, but a pond yeah. makes more sense. It would be a smaller body of water right in front of the house. And so we've got that great picture he paints where he looks at the house and then he looks down into the reflection of the house in the water. And that's when he really gets the sense that he's walked into a the most depressing snow globe of all time. Kind of. <laughs> you know, he's just stuck in there. Yes. And then, uh, you know, he looks up and when he observes the house a little more closely to kind of reconcile what these feelings are, he, he sees that it, it is stable. I mean, it's holding together, mm-hmm. but that it actually is alive quite literally because there's fungi all over it and plant life yeah, and vegetable matter just climbing everywhere around the stone. So, Lovecraft says that he manages to imbue this inanimate thing with life, but technically, I mean, the house the house has grown up around the structure of the house. You know, the house is a skeleton and there is living matter on it. I disagree with a few of the interpretations that people make, even Lovecraft, and I'll, we'll talk about it a bit later, but here, hmm. I don't see this as the the fungi and the, like, the ivy that were taking over the house to be part of the house. I feel like it's sort of nature starting to pull it back to reclaim it and destroy it. See, I see it as part of it because these are the, like, these vines and these fungi and these things have grown up around it and been there for so long that they're part of the stone. You know, I almost feel like, but they are eventually going to be its demise as well and replace it. So, I mean, I technically we're both right, I guess. Well, no, I mean, it's not about what's right or wrong. It's just my interpretation. When I hear that, it, it being covered in fungi and, and having ivy or or any type of vegetation that grows into a building, it will destroy it eventually. And that's a lot of what causes buildings to fall apart is, well, one, water getting into nooks and crannies, freezing, and then it expands and makes those crannies bigger and seeds and dust and vegetation and things. And plants get in there and those roots grow and then they eventually rip things apart. Yeah, but now that I'm thinking about it, you are wrong. Anyway, the... uh, um... Oh. The house. I don't know. <laughs> the, the the point is, there is one long crack in the house that only yeah. the astute observer might see. I mean, he has to really look to see it, but it's a crack that goes, you know, from the top of the house all the way down to the mm-hmm. to the ground. So it's a little ratcheting on the house there, <laughs> the way you might ratchet a spoon if you want to bend it. This thing's ready to go. <laughs> so there's a little causeway, I guess that that's what goes over the tar, and then there's like a little bridge. Yeah, there's still servants living in the house, which surprised me. I almost felt like it was going to be because I haven't read this. I don't know. When's the last time you read it? It was high school, for sure. In fact, yeah. when I started reading this one, I was like, wait a minute. Do I know what happens in the story? Is this the story? And then about when his sister showed up, I go, oh, okay, I remember what story this is. Yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. been twenty, at least 20 years since I've read it. I expected it to be a Dracula-type situation where there would be no servants or you know, Usher would show up with a fake mustache on and <laughs> let me get your bag, sir. <laughs> that, Which is what Dracula does. Dracula? You know, that's, Yeah, yeah, yeah. When uh, Dracula pretends to be the coachman. Oh, right. Yeah, that's of course. Yeah, yeah. But he doesn't have a fake mustache. No, he's got a real mustache. But I I think he is. He plays at it. He doesn't reveal himself. So Dracula is kind of, you know, in a kooky disguise the first time you meet him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that Dracula. And as our protagonist enters the house, he's led in by uh, a valet or servant and and a valet valet. He's looking at the objects around him, the carvings and the ceilings, the tapestries, armor trophies around these are things that are familiar to him so clearly he's grown up in a in a traditional house or castle kind of environment as well like rich people as well like aristocracy type individuals people with money and wealth that would be growing up in big mansions that have servants 
Exactly. Even this stuff that's very familiar to him is, you know, kind of creating these fancies that are unfamiliar to him. Everything, things just don't seem right. Well, and everything is tattered and worn as well. All of the, the tapestries that are, are dark and creepy, they're, they're sort of frayed, and the furniture's, all, all the edges are a little worn, and it just hasn't been kept up. And the physician is just leaving as he comes in, and the physician looks a little both perplexed, but also to have this kind of low cunning. Uh, he doesn't actually talk to the doctor, but the, the, there's a great sentence here in that <laughs> paragraph that says, The valet now threw open a door and ushered me into the presence of his master. <laughs> I was like, you old dog. <laughs> okay, so he comes in to see Roderick Usher. Dark yeah. draperies are hanging on the walls. Mm -hmm. uh, things are tattered, as you say. There's lots of books and musical instruments scattered around, not making it look like it's a fun place. They just look, you know, cluttered. He says, surely man had never been before so terribly altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. When he said that, it just reminded me of From Beyond so much. In what way? The beginning of that story, mm -hmm. the protagonist receives a letter from Crawford Tillinghast. Oh, right. says, I need help. Get here immediately. He shows up and the place looks a little odd. And when he opens the door, he says, uh, "I my friend is so visibly altered. And the language is even similar to this. I think he cribbed some of the phrasing. He might have even said, it's well, a brief period or something like wait that. Wait a minute. Are you trying to say that Lovecraft borrowed something from Poe? <laughs> is that what you're putting on the table right now? That's what I'm asserting. Yes, I am. I, it just reminded me of that. Obviously, there's a lot of shades of um, the rats in the walls as well in here. He says, but I had not thought that a brief period of 10 weeks could so alter and disfigure any human creature. And then he goes on to describe how changed he is. Oh. And it just seemed, um, yeah, surely man had never been so terribly altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. It's the same path that he threads. He gets the letter, he shows up, and when he sees him, there's this massive change. Yeah. And it just, that's what happens in front of me as well. Such a ripoff. It's very similar. You know what? I I'm, I hate Lovecraft now. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. The great description of uh, Roderick, his eye large, liquid, and luminous. The, the whole description of his face is really interesting. Great description of the web-like softness and tenuity of his hair. Um, it's wild gossamer texture. It floated rather than fell about his face. It's like, oh, wow, that is great. Like, I know exactly what he's talking about, the people that have that really fine, light hair, and it's yeah. just really wispy, and, oh, it's so good. It creates this impression of extreme uh, fragility in Usher. He, he goes into his maladies, all of the things that Usher is suffering, and there's nothing specific. I mean, he sort of just has chronic fatigue syndrome and hypochondria and... But he has super senses. I don't... He's really <laughs> sensitive to light and he could hear yeah. things and he's sensitive to, to certain kinds of sounds. So the only sounds that he can enjoy are string instruments. Right. But that's not a superpower. Because well, I, th I, th I got the impression that he could hear... No, he could hear really well. No, isn't, no, no. Isn't no. that it, the whole point of the story is that he... He hears before everybody else does, his sister trying to get out of the thing, but he ignores it. Yeah, I guess. I don't know if it's that he has... Well, I guess there's a way of looking at it, Chris. I didn't think of it that <laughs> way. I mean, I, I mean he has an extreme... the ending of the story, but... No, 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 um... no, no. No, no he, he does hear her. You're right, he does. It's that he has extreme sensitivities to these things. So, like, a normal amount of light would hurt him. Um, a low amount of sound would be too loud for him. These are the sensitivities he has, which are symptoms that you would find in all sorts of maladies. But I'm, I'm still going with this, that part of it is that he's super sensitive. <laughs> Since he's super sensitive, he also can hear a little bit better than everybody else can. Okay. I think it plays into the whole story. So I think we're both kind of saying the same thing. All of his senses are tortured. 
by any kind of stimulus, but he's been by himself in this place for a long time. Usher says to him, in this pitiable state that I'm in, in this condition, I feel that sooner or later I have to abandon life and reason together in some struggle with the grim phantasm, fear. Which that was an interesting. I thought a little, you know, dramatic, but... <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting. He didn't say I'm going to be in struggle with death. I'm going to abandon life and reason in some struggle with fear. Because, it, again, when you were talking in the beginning, how it's not just about death. It's about the death of the entire family. Yeah. And what that means, the whole line of, of people. It's you're, you're right. It's really interesting to say fear and not death. He goes on to say that he himself sort of has this superstitious impression that the house is in some relationship with he and his sister as well. And obviously part of the reason that he's upset and sick is because his sister is sick and practically dying. Yeah. She's got a malady, and that's kind of what the physician was there for primarily, is to see her. Nobody can diagnose this thing. Nobody knows what's going on with her, but she is fading away, and she's fading away fast. He realizes that once that woman is gone, I mean, he really is. There's no question about it. He can't have children, obviously. So that is the end of the ancient race of the ushers. And while he's saying this, the sister actually makes an appearance. While he spoke, the Lady Madeline, for so was she called, passed slowly through a remote portion of the apartment and without having noticed my presence, disappeared. I regarded her with an utter astonishment, not unmingled with dread, and yet I found it impossible to account for such feelings. A sensation of stupor oppressed me as my eyes followed her retreating steps. When a door at length closed upon her, my glance sought instinctively and eagerly the countenance of the brother, but he had buried his face in his hands and I could only perceive that a far more than ordinary wanness had overspread the emaciated fingers, through which trickled many passionate tears. That's a really creepy entrance for her. Yeah, sort of mysterious. Now, this is a weird thing. It's not in it's not in there at all. It doesn't say anything about her appearance, but for, for some reason in my head, she's really um, hot. Yeah, well... I don't know why. Why do I go that way? I don't understand. It doesn't... She's suffering from some sort of disease, but to me, she's like this ghostly, attractive woman. That's true. She could be morbidly obese. Really bad skin, or her hair's falling out, or any... You know, she could be a mess, but for some reason in my head, she's this kind of ghostly, beautiful, yeah. gothy chick. Well, I think you're right, though. I mean, <laughs> the press... <laughs> <laughs> Since we're, I'm, I'm dealing out rights and wrongs in this, uh, <laughs> this episode. Well, I think there's precedent there in that Poe was sort of obsessed with beautiful dead women. So if you're finding a woman who's dead or dying, you can be pretty sure that she's going to be hot, too. <laughs> if well, there's something in the fact that a woman is dead is that she can't disappoint you. Oh, my God. That was the creepiest thing I've ever heard somebody say. <laughs> Whoa! I'm just saying that it's easy to idealize somebody that is dead. I I know that's what you meant, man, but out of context, <laughs> I'm calling the police. Uh, well, you know, dude, I'm, I got a dark side, man. <laughs> wow. It's about time you understood that about me. <laughs> well, um, I think that's a good spot to end. <laughs> Possibly our relationship, but definitely this episode. I really like the story, and, and we're kind of jumping all over the place. We'll probably focus in a little tighter in the next episode. But we've got a little time, and I think um, 
it's nice to just drill in on the language a little bit. And yeah, I just talk about the different. I, it's moods really the nice to to take our time on this particular story because I think this is Poe's most famous prose ever. Really, I'd say it's probably the Telltale Heart. But how many story. goth clubs are named the Telltale Heart? I know House of Usher was one of the goth revival places in the mid '90s in San Francisco. Well, this is definitely the Telltale Heart's a pretty straight up um, crime story. I don't. I, this is more. You, you know, you may be right, but I, this is definitely up there. Yeah. If I, if it's not the top. Oh no, no no you're right you're right it it is is way up there. But I I love it and I I can't wait to talk about it more next week. Yeah. I also wanted to say because we rushed in and we forgot to at the top i really want to thank our reader andrew lehman who did an amazing job and uh we're gonna be revealing more of the story in the next couple of episodes so you'll you'll be hearing more from him but when we read the story and we're talking about it we thought it it just has to be andrew to do this so thank you andrew for reading for us this episode side note i wanted to bring up is our graphic novel deadbeats is out now it is and ready for consumption in the uk however there is a site called bookdepository.com that has free shipping worldwide. So all in, you can get a copy of Deadbeats for, I think, $18.21. Yeah, basically, you're just paying whatever the exchange rate is on it, but the shipping's free. So it's um, it's the same as buying it you know, in a store locally. I mean, it takes some time to ship, but that's worldwide, too. So anybody in Germany, Norway. Yeah, they have a list of where they ship worldwide, and I think most English-speaking countries are on that list. Yeah, so pick up Deadbeats, and if you have a chance and you enjoyed reading it, uh, go over to Amazon or go over to Book Depository and write us a review if you could. And those reviews really help just getting the word out on the book and, and building the, the kind of momentum. And, you know, exactly. if you didn't like it, I appreciate your patronage, but don't write anything because it just hurts my feelings. <laughs> it just makes our lives way harder. And take <laughs> take some mercy on us and uh, don't write a bad review. Yeah, that's right. Just feel bad um, for us no. for having written, written a terrible graphic novel. Exactly. And that's punishment enough. That's what you should think. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's great. I think it's really yes. a fun book. And I, I think most people will enjoy it. That's all we've got for this week. We're going to be back next time with more of The Fall of the House of Usher here on the premium feed for hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. Thanks. hppodcraft.com. Ah!